Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Asking the question, are you the one to come, right? There was an expectation that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So this week we're going to find even more evidence in these scriptures that we go into that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that Jesus continues to answer this question with his own words and his actions. So Joe also mentioned last week that you you cannot be indifferent. You have to make a decision on who you believe Jesus is. So maybe you're here this morning and are still maybe a little skeptical yourself. I think it's good that you're here. Jesus responded to a group of of skeptics by making statements about who he was and left it for them to decide. So in a little bit, we're going to be getting into Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. And the scene really begins with Jesus and his disciples. They're walking through a field, uh, just talking, and um, they're actually picking some grain uh, and eating it on the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees saw what they were doing and decided to confront Jesus in order to ruin, basically ruin his ministry and hopefully get rid of him. Now, before we all get all judgmental and, and angry uh, with the Pharisees and think to ourselves, I want to start off this message by just kind of considering a little bit our own lives as we think about this subject. Let's realize that sometimes we ourselves are fine doing similar things that the Pharisees do. We judge others about how they act, or are sometimes critical about something that they are doing. None of us are immune from the sin of legalism or self-righteousness and pride, and sometimes the way we think about others. And so I just want to be starting off in that manner that, that we're a part of this, too. We sometimes come up with our own rules about how we think things should work, right? Now let me give you some real-world examples of of how some people have come up with some rules uh, because of overreacting to a situation, okay? Now again, these are some laws that are out there. Did you know that in Louisiana, it is illegal to to send a surprise pizza? It is considered harassment and may cost you a fine of about $500 if you send one. So beware if you're in Louisiana. In Baltimore, Maryland, sleeveless shirts are banned in public parks. I'd like to see them enforce that one. Uh, In Minnesota, dirty vehicle tires are banned. Uh Uh-oh, you just went through a mud puddle. You better go to the car wash and get it washed off right away, right? Um, And then in New York, slippers are banned after 10 p.m. They are not to be worn after dark. So, again, I don't know how these laws got put in. Um, 
And maybe they serve their, their purpose in a specific situation, but they don't really take into consideration the big picture. This is what Jesus was up against. The Pharisees were missing the heart of the matter. So in order to give us a little bit of background, I actually want to start this morning, uh, before we get into Matthew 12, 1, 1 to 21, I want to begin in the first three verses of Genesis, uh, chapter 2, so that we um, understand what the Sabbath was created for, okay? Now, Genesis chapter 1 is basically describing the story of creation and, and how uh, our world came into being. And chapter 2 uh, begins the seventh day uh, when God creates the Sabbath or the day of rest. And this is what it says. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he has done, that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now realize that God is all powerful. So resting wasn't because he was tired from all of his work. It was because he was designing it to spend time with his creation. He made the day holy and blessed it, dedicated to enjoying, dedicated it to enjoying what he had created. So the rest in this passage arises from the joy of what was created as a as opposed to tiredness and fatigue. In the same way, the Sabbath rest for us is a time for remembering God, exactly what Jason talked about in communion this morning, for remembering him, experiencing the joy of who he is, his creation, and his character. Hopefully that's why you're here this morning or whether you're joining us online. As you consider who God is this morning, I hope that you will see that Jesus is the merciful Messiah, which is the title for this morning's message, the merciful Messiah. So let's get into today's scripture because this is a fairly large passage. We're just going to go through it a, a scripture at a time. We're not going to read the whole thing to begin with. Um, but we're going to start with, obviously, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 12. And they say this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So just like our laws earlier may have seen a little over top in situations, uh, the Pharisees' rules for the Sabbath at this point uh, have started to become incredibly burdensome, okay? For example, the law actually forbade carrying a load on the Sabbath, right? Okay, so, but what, considers, what is considered a load, they basically considered if it was something that you carried, all right? So what about clothing? If you're thinking about clothing, 
uh, it, was, it was worn, if it was worn as clothing, you're wearing it, it was not considered a load. But if it wasn't worn and you were carrying it in your hands, it was carried a load, or considered a load. So one way to get an, uh, an item of clothing from one room to another was to take it, put it on, walk to the next room, and then take it back off again. Seems like a lot of work to me, just to obey the letter of the law. Jason put in my notes that it's ironic that it was a lot of work to obey a law about not working. So remember, just these are laws that, that again, didn't catch the heart of the matter. Remember that Jesus just finished saying, last week we learned in chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the Pharisees were purposefully manipulating the scriptures here to basically undermine Jesus' ministry and his influence on people. Now, I don't believe that this was only unique to the Pharisees, like I said earlier. I think that all of us can have a tendency to do this at times. We sometimes even take specific scriptures to support our own ideas, our own way of thinking, without taking into consideration other passages, or the whole word of God. We have to understand that in this situation, the, the Pharisees had an agenda in mind. They are trying to stop Jesus' ministry. And in fact, they were ignoring scriptures like Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25 that says this, If you go and see your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing corn. So this verse actually supports what the disciples were doing. But the Pharisees, of course, didn't want to bring this one up. They were also avoiding the fact that even the priests worked on the day of rest to prepare different sacrifices, and they are not accused of breaking the law. Now, Jesus could have debated them on all these little ins and outs of these laws, on their rules and what constitutes work. But Jesus has another goal in mind in these coming verses. Jesus is about to make a statement that answers John the Baptist's question of, are you the one who is to come? So the first statement that Jesus makes is that he is priest, prophet, and king. Jesus is priest, prophet, and king. So let's, let's see how he does this. Verse 3, starting verse 3, it says, He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful, to, lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him? but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple 
is here. Jesus is making a very important declaration in this, state, in this section. He's making a statement that he is the Messiah. He starts off by saying, have you not read what David did? He knows that they've read it. He knows that they've read it because they would have had to have memorized the Old Testament even to become a rabbi. Would they accuse David of a former, a former king of Israel in the same way of breaking the Sabbath? David had had a need to preserve his life, and that act passed without condemnation from God or from the priests at that time. Jesus is exposing the fact that the Pharisees have not grasped the true principle of the Sabbath to experience the joy and rest that comes from considering God's character and considering who God is. He was putting the question back to the Pharisees. Which is more important, following a ceremonial rule or preserving life? He wants them to see the foundation of his ministry, the love and mercy that God shows for sinners. So let's consider what Jesus is saying in verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple, or something greater than the temple is here. Now, if you look at Scripture, these are, this is actually the first of three greater than statements in Matthew chapter 12. All right? Later in Matthew chapter 12, verses 41, we'll actually be getting to this next week, um, and verses 42 as well, Jesus, use, Jesus uses two other greater than statements. He says, something greater than Jonah is here, and something greater than Solomon is here. So the temple was representing the priests, Jonah was representing the prophets, and Solomon was representing the kings. When you put these three statements together, Jesus is claiming to be priest, a priest, a king, and a prophet. All attributes of the Messiah that was to come. The Messiah is here. It is fulfilled in Jesus. If this isn't upsetting the Pharisees yet, he is about to answer them with another statement. Okay, so in verse 7, it continues. Verse 7 and 8 says this, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is not just a statement of, of how God wants us to treat others. All right? It's a reflection of his own heart and ministry. God was extremely compassionate to those around them. He has actually confronted the Pharisees on this question before. Matthew 9, chapter 9, 13 said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus speaks these words, he's actually referring to the prophet Hosea 
and the prophet Micah. Hosea 6.6 6 says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, 6 6-8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It is love and kindness that is important, not legalism. It's more important for you to know the love of God than to live in perfect obedience. That doesn't mean that you don't try to live a life that pleases God, right? But you always fall short trying to live that perfect life. That's why we need to know Jesus and know who he is. Jesus is the perfect example of showing mercy to each of us. You know, he would have every right to enforce justice or hold us accountable for our sins. But he chose to die on a cross. He chose, he chose to die for each one of us. He waits patiently for you to come. Will you come to him? 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When we reach repentance, the understanding that we are sinners in need of a Savior, he forgives those who respond to him, to his offer of mercy and forgiveness once you place your faith in who he is. He offers us mercy as opposed to justice. God's goal is not to condemn us, but his goal is to save us. Jesus is saying that he has the authority over the Sabbath and that he has the power to share his blessings. Jesus is where you will find that rest for your soul, an eternal rest. But the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath. Now again, I can imagine that particularly phrase, particular phrase must have been infuriating to the Pharisees. He's already referred to himself as priest, prophet, and king. And now he's adding the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath to the list. He's making it very clear to them that he is the Messiah, and that he's not only claiming that he has the power to save, but is about to prove it through action and another miraculous healing. Jesus is the good shepherd. Okay? At this point, uh, in verse 9, as we go into verse 9, Jesus moves right into the heart of their worship. Okay, it says, he went on from there and entered into their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, 
will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Here Jesus is making a point uh, that a good shepherd will rescue a sheep that is in trouble any day of the week, right? Now, a sheep in that time was a part of a family's livelihood, uh, and anybody really at that time would even have an economic reason to help a sheep that has fallen in a pit. If, if a life is in danger, everything should be done to rescue the dying. Even the Pharisees would find a way to circumvent their rules for the Sabbath of work in order to rescue a sheep in a situation like this because they had value. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? I think Jason did a beautiful job a couple of weeks ago of, of explaining and illustrating this um, when, he, when he shared the fact that a, a sparrow, anytime it falls to the ground, not necessarily just falling to the ground, but anytime it lands, the fact that Jesus knows that every time a sparrow lands to the ground, how valuable you are to God. He knows that how much more he knows you. So he wants to save you. God wants to save you from that pit that you are in. So in verse 13, we find him doing this. He's following it with his actions. He says, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And he was restored, healthy, like the other hand. You know, he didn't even command it to be healed. He did not touch the man. He did not move over to the man and do it. He did not have to work in any way. He willed that the man would be healed. And he was. Jesus, as he created the world in Genesis 1, he willed this man, just as he did it in Genesis, he, he willed this man to be healed. healed. Jesus is a good shepherd, and he rescues his sheep. Which brings us to the last statement that Jesus is making in this passage. Jesus is a merciful servant. Okay? Saying that I am a merciful servant. And we find this in verses 14 to 21. It says this. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him and how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. He didn't want this, he wasn't prepared yet to be, uh, be in, being discovered as the Messiah just yet in, in the world itself, okay? His time had not yet come, as Scripture tells us. So this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. 
Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew confirms in these these verses Jesus' statements by using this reference in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. This comes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. And he's using it to show that the life of Jesus fulfills some of the prophecies that were spoken about the coming Messiah. All right? One of those is that the Messiah will bring justice and hope to the world that we read in these verses. The second one is that the Messiah will be a quiet and meek servant. And the third one is that the Messiah will care for those who are bruised and tired. So Matthew basically summarizes this as well later in Matthew 20, 28. He says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has sympathy for those who are weak. He treats with tender compassion those of you who are near to exhaustion. Some of you are here this morning. Maybe you feel like, hopefully I have a a photo of it here. Maybe you feel like this candle. Looks like it's about burnout. It looks like it's just smoldering at this point. It's not even giving off a bright light. It's barely burning. Maybe feeling like you don't have much left. Most people may look at something like this and think that it's probably useless at this point for giving light. But Jesus rekindles a smoldering wick. It says that a smoldering wick, he will not quench. Right? He can rekindle you and give you what you need to give off light once more. You see, Jesus did not come to gather strong Christians or powerful people to start a revolution over the Romans, over the Roman authority of that time, but he came to show mercy to the weak. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in time of need. We want to remember that this passage tells us who God is. He is the Messiah, and we can go to him for mercy in time of need. So I want to call the band, um, and I, I want to leave you with uh, uh, one last image. Yeah, go ahead. You guys can come up. Um, I want to leave you with one last image of 
of God's mercy. I think many of us can relate to this, this image um, as I talk about it. It's something that most of us are very familiar with, either as a child or especially those who are, of you who are parents in the room. But a parent knows when a child is suffering. Say they're suffering from a severe cold or a sore throat or runny nose, severe congestion, whatever, assorted aches and pains, and all they can do is throw their arms around their parent. They throw their arms around your neck and cry out for mercy. What does this evoke in you as a parent? It often awakens your pity, doesn't it? And you reach out and try to relieve the child's distress in any way that you possibly can. Because of their mercy or misery, because of their misery, it has called forth your mercy. Maybe you are broken and hurting this morning, and Jesus, and Jesus is just waiting for you to call out to him. Will you go to him and call out on his mercy this morning? He may not change your circumstances, but he can change your heart and can bring joy in life of knowing who he is, the merciful Messiah. So let's, let's pray, and we're going to sing... Um, another song, but let's just pray that we really begin to understand who God is, his character, this Messiah that came to save us, and that when we're going through struggles, we turn to him for his mercy. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are the Messiah, that you are the promised one. You are the one that these scriptures point to, and you proved it not only in words, but in actions. Father, you not only healed the person with the hand, the crippled hand, but you have also gone to a cross to pay for the sins of this world, that we may find forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that you have shown us mercy. We thank you that you have shown us the gift of eternal life. And so, Father, as we contemplate on who you are this Sabbath day, this Sunday, as we go throughout our day, I pray that we would remember who you are, what you have done, and the mercy that you have shown us. So, Father, we give you thanks, we give you praise, and we give you glory for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together.